0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Daily Objective and today is everybody's favorite day, Philosophy Friday. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about the Greek mythologies and the earlier versions of them and later versions of them. And uh, you might've wondered like, okay, that's mythology. How does this relate to philosophy? Oh, in many ways. Today we're going to be talking about the relationship between the myth of Prometheus and Ayn Rand, the namesake of this very channel. Real quick reminder, we're coming to London in uh, barely over a week or barely two weeks, whatever it is, March 28th, that whole week, we're going to be live, lots of free events, lots of events, stuff you're going to want to be at, special members only stuff happening as well. Trust me on this. You're going to want to be there in the week leading up to Ayn RandCon. And then the day after Ayn RandCon, which is April 4th, special event with me. The details of which will be announced right now. I am going to be reuniting with my good old friend Sagan of a cad or as uh, this generation calls him, Carl Benjamin. We got some unfinished business some stuff to talk about. Wh- whatever happened to you, man? I'd love to catch up with that guy. Um, if, if you're unaware, I spoke to him about Ayn Rand and objectivism on the Internet some years ago. Back uh, This was such a long time ago. Uh Carl was fighting for liberty, for individualism in some respect. It's gonna be interesting. Uh it's gonna be interesting to catch up. Uh so anyway, uh enough with the announcement. Let's let's get down to business. Let's talk uh, to the myth himself, the myth of this channel. It's Jason Rhines. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Um
1: yes. funny little bit about a myth. Um Sargon of Akkad founded um really the Akkadian. Uh, Empire, which is the precursor to the Babylonian and, as- and Assyrian empires. Um, and there are enormous mythological sort of stories told about him. He was a real person, it seems, but, um, you mm-hmm. know, uh, kings back then had really big myths told about them that they were gods or the children of gods and all kinds of things. Anyway, one story told about Sargon is that as a child, he was placed in. In a basket and sent down the river, the Tigris or Euphrates—I forget which one—until he was until he was uh, recovered by uh, by a royal household. So the the story of uh, of the kind of Moses as foundling in uh, the river basket sent by Yehovah and recovered by uh, the princess Miriam. of Egypt. Well, Miriam in one version watches, but she's recovered by an Egyptian queen. Okay. Uh, a princess. Um, that's actually an older uh, story about Sargon, uh, or at least it might be older than Sargon too, but it's at least that
0: old. Wow. Uh, so. I, I never realized uh, the original historical figure, Sargon of Akkad, or at least the story of Sargon, uh, is the sort of early proto-Moses, it sounds yeah. like.
1: I won't keep us much longer from the, the mythology Prometheus stuff in Ren, but just one other tidbit. In the Hebrew Bible, when... They, when the story is told about Moses, it's used to make a folk etymology for his name. And the idea is that it, his name, in, which in Hebrew is Moshe, um, is explained as kind of um, that, that this princess sort of took him up out of or retrieved him out of the water. Um, that's a false etymology. That's not where the name comes from. It's actually an Egyptian name. Um, our our way of saying it, Moses, is uh, uh, is just like the but Moses in Ramses or Moses or Thutmosis or any of those other Egyptian Phara- pharaonic names. It's beloved of, and then usually the first part is a god. So Ra-Moses, beloved of Ra, Thutmosis, beloved of Thoth, and so on. So here you have, now you might think, well, why not just say like he was raised by Egyptians. They gave him an, a royal Egyptian name. Yeah. You get a folk etymology in Hebrew
0: anyway. Wow. And, and how do you I know all say, this stuff? I'm kidding. Go ahead.
1: I should say many scholars over the years, um, probably most famously Freud, but other people who are more serious, I think scholars of a history of religion, um, made a lot to do out of that and, and have sort of thought perhaps this was a, an Egyptian, this is the kind of folk memory of an Egyptian priest who perhaps even brought the kind of monotheism of of, that was briefly sort of monotheism that was briefly in vogue in the the reign of Amenhotep IV who changed his name to Akhenaten and converted all of Egyptian religion to the worship of this solar disk god, the Aten um, before being overthrown and everything he did being kind of rolled back. Um, People have speculated. So it's been much food for, for discussion and thought
0: that's right okay um now watch me segue um yeah. sorry i didn't make it easy no i d- no need to apologize the uh my- the myth mythologies are incestuous by which i don't mean that the gods are sleeping around with their immediate family i mean Although because they, they, they do but that's not what i mean i mean you see this god is starting to look a lot like that god from that civilization so every time i turn around i'm seeing another Myth older than the Hebrew Bible, that sounds a lot like the God that I was told about growing up. So Prometheus in, in some traditions, uh, it might be sort of like a proto Yahweh, right? Well, it's, it's probably more accurate to say
1: that Prometheus and certain stories about Yahweh slash Elohim, the Hebrew Bible God, that both of them take inspiration from common sources I don't think there's any reason to think that um, that at the formative period we've looked at, say by the classical Greek age, Hebrews have really encountered the Greeks or the Greeks have really encountered the Hebrews. The first first possible mention of of a Jew or Jews um, by Greeks comes from a a, a sort of fragmentary report from one of Aristotle's students. so, so we're talking about the early, uh, the the early third century BCE, right? Like 300 BCE. So, the time that you know something like the Plato's myths or Aeschylus' plays, and certainly like Hesiod's epics and so on, or poems are written. They they don't know about these people,
0: and vice versa. Um. Right. So, uh, so it's like when people uh, would try to deny evolution, they would they would mock it and say like, oh, so you're saying a couple of chimpanzees had a human one day? And it's like, no, 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 no. Humans and, and the monkeys and the apes have a common ancestor. And that's right. probably true or is definitely true for many of these varying myths that resemble each other.
1: Yeah. Now I should say in the case of myths, we try to use um, genetic, in a sense, uh, methodologies to try to figure out what Came when and what comes from what, um, but it's much less exact than in the biological case. And even in the biological case, if you don't have genetic information, if you're just relying on fossils, it can be in some respects inexact. But we, we sort of do our best to try to guess what a what is a vertical relationship, a relationship of descent and influence, versus what might be a kind of horizontal relationship. So, um, and so you know, in some cases. Um, and, and sometimes even the distinction breaks down. So this, you know, culture A may not be a sort of descendant culture of culture B, but they might trade with culture B and enjoy this story that they have and they pick it up. Um, and, you know, it, and, uh, and then they give it back to them in a different form and now they have it, you know, so it, it's, it can be tricky to figure out what's a borrowing, what's an innovation. I mean, the other thing is that human beings have an ability in our stories at least to uh well in many dimensions but certainly in stories certainly in stuff we just make up to innovate in all kinds of radical ways um out out of nowhere right and and seemingly out of nowhere and so you know you can always it's always possible that new elements um in human stories develop independently it may be there but there are some myths that sort of have parallel evolution like you have a myth of this these people on the other side of the world have a myth of So, you know, if we find, for example, there are certain common elements in certain Native American myths on the one hand and certain, let's say, myths in the Balkans on the other hand, probably more likely explanation in most cases, unless it's some kind of extraordinary coincidence, more likely explanation uh, is that they, in, they developed independently rather than uh, this is a myth that goes all the way back 15,000 years 17,000 years, to when the first people crossed the land bridge into the Americas, and they carried it all that time, and then the myth was passed down, like that's really implausible, um, that a myth sort of survives without that many elements sort of intact for that long, especially for cultures that in both cases are for most of that time, at least, um, oral traditions and not written.
0: Yeah, and some people uh, who I consider to be sort of pseudo scientists, they try to say that uh, you know these stories are innate, that they're universal, that every culture independently has them because they're evolutionarily passed to us just like our regular genetics. And I know I, I, I I'm, I'm I really don't want to uh, deviate too much from the topic okay. today, but I'd be but uh, let's bookmark that because it's going to come up when we get to a Jordan Peterson themed show sure. when the time sure. is right. Um, so. Prometheus, uh, uh he he's he's he brought fire to the humans. Um he in some in some myths is the creator of humans. Um anything else basic to I need to know about Prometheus before we we start talking about Ayn Rand's view um, of him? Or? The
1: main, so the main the main things are he's so he steals fire from the gods and gives it to mankind. He creates mankind. Um, in some cases, uh, saves them from the flood um, and helps them repopulate. Uh, teaches men all the arts and sciences, or at least many of the most basic ones. Um, and of course, he is punished severely for giving mankind fire um, or helping them in some other way that the gods didn't approve of. And, um, and in, in those ways, um, but those are some of the myths. In some of the myths, Prometheus is associated with uh, well uh, one way of reading his name is sort of foresight so sometimes he is a god who can prophesy the future sometimes Zeus wants to know what he foresees for example has prometheus foreseen whether a younger god will overthrow him if so you know who who should zeus not sleep with so he doesn't beget his his future rival and so on um, and there's finally a sort of myth later of that uh, Heracles slays the uh, eagle or vulture that eats on his liver and liberates him from the Caucasus, and that perhaps he's even reconciled in some way with Zeus. So um, the punishment is really central. The association with knowledge is really essential. The theft of, of the creation of man and the flood, and then, of course, the um, most of all, the the theft of fire and giving it to mankind.
0: Why does he want to give these gifts to man?
1: Um, You get, I think the accounts somewhat differ, but mostly the basic ideas is Prometheus sort of as a kind of baseline is in the etymological sense, philanthropic. He loves human beings. He, uh, why? Well, probably the main reason is he made us. We're his children in a way that we are not for the other gods. Now, Zeus is called father of gods and men and he begets many heroes and so on. But he, um, And there are even kind of um, Greek myths where Zeus either orders or oversees in some way humans being made, um, perhaps by Hephaestus or some one of the other crafty gods. Um, but in general, Prometheus is the one who seems really tied to our well-being. Um, additionally, um, though Prometheus helps Zeus defeat the Titans, um, it seems like he's not terribly keen on just having a new overlord, um, at least in some versions of the myth. So in Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound, um, Pro- Prometheus, uh, or perhaps by Aeschylus, some people, dis- many people dispute that authorship, but in any case, Aeschylus is Prometheus Bound. Um, Prometheus presents, sees Zeus as a tyrant and Zeus does everything he can to make Prometheus seem right. Zeus rules by force and compulsion and Prometheus sort of just wants to be free and uh, us to be free um, and just doesn't like it. Um, so um, there are, uh, and in some, in some of the older, pre kind of Prometheus myths, when the, when the flood is discussed, it's Prometheus, the one who has foresight or Ea or Enki and so on, who says, This is crazy. Who are who's going to offer you sacrifices if you kill all of human beings? And like, you're not going to be able to take this back and, and the other gods are like, no, do it. And he's the only one, you know, with, he, he just has a, a he just has more sense, um, more reasoning power to kind of see that this is a bad idea. So the main thing is though, is that he is a kind of he is the sort of prototypical philanthropic. God. Other gods do not particularly care for human beings. They may care for specific human beings. Athena has her favorite heroes that she promotes in various ways, and some of the other gods have that too. The gods may have mortal children, demigods, that they sort of favor or on. But by and large, the gods don't particularly like to see, the Greek gods at least, don't particularly like to see human beings thrive. Um, they're quite the gods are happy because they are immortal and they have no kind of problems and they're just better than we are at at everything. And um, they don't have worries. They live in in a blessed existence, a happy existence, and they are, they jealously guard it as a kind of proprietary state. That is, they do not suffer human beings to be too happy or to be too good at any specific thing that they do either. Um, And I'm not aware of any stories with Prometheus that have that kind of, what the Greeks call phthonos, which is, we sometimes translate as envy or divine um, hostility or wrath. Um, He has the opposite. He seems to have a kind of benevolent regard for human beings. He just wants us to do well, it seems, perhaps because we're his um, in a very special way. So... That's that that becomes a key kind of idea is that you don't the Greeks don't have much of a notion of a benevolent deity, but Prometheus, who almost know Greeks worship, I should say, and like are almost none. There's a small festival where they carry torches in Athens. but Prometheus seems to be that kind of figure.
0: and yeah so I'm prob- so I'm not the first to make this analogy. I, I think uh, someone in the Objectivist sort of uh, scene, um, whose name I forget, wrote like a short book, I think comparing America's founding fathers to Prometheus. And I, so I think they're like an analogous to the, to Zeus would be like the authoritarians, the Kings, people who don't want to let people be free. Uh, whereas, you know, Prometheus or Thomas Jefferson is kind of like unleashing individuals to, to use reason and to, and to thrive. Um, so, I mean, the, the analogy there seems to be, apparent uh and possibly even intended in in some respect by the pe- the people who who crafted and developed the myth do you think
1: uh let me show you something that's um benjamin franklin drawing electricity from the sky by benjamin west about 1816 mm-hmm. franklin was in his own day a rock star a scientific genius seen as like just a seen as a philosopher, a statesman, a wit, a, a diplomat, and everything, and kind of really raised the profile of these colonists from sort of backwater people to people that sort of some Europeans were like, these people are going to be the future, like they're doing everything. Anyway, here's his famous kite experiment where he demonstrates that, electrici- that lightning is an electrical phenomenon. Um, People knew about electricity, but they really only knew about it as static electricity. He showed that lightning was an electrical phenomenon. And he is depicted here more or less in the guise of Prometheus. Um, In addition to kind of showing that lightning was electrical, uh, Franklin also made major innovations uh, to lightning rods, um, which made them much, much more effective. And as a result, saved an enormous number of houses and buildings um, throughout the, so-called civilized world um, from destruction by fire from from lightning bolts. So he really did seem like he was harnessing the fire of the heavens. Um, I just I couldn't resist sharing that that here is a founding mm-hmm. father in the ni- early 19th century being quite explicitly compared to Prometheus. Um, yeah, sure. and, even,
0: uh, and and Paul Giamatti, the baby Paul Giamatti was even in that picture. I don't. I guess you close <laughs> it now, but uh, that was pretty amazing for them to oh my include God. that. Yeah yeah you see it can't unsee it now but sorry but but um i interrupted
1: yeah uh so anyway um yeah you can think of you can think of i mean there's a sense in which so throughout time many many great benefactors of mankind have been likened in some way or another to prometheus or to a kind of promethean role or spirit um uh um there's a kind of funny passage in Love's Labour's Lost where Barone, the kind of sophistic lead who likes to make kind of BS arguments to prove what they want him to prove, um, is arguing to a bunch of uh, uh, elites, uh, including the Prince of Navarre, who have sworn to only be students and to forsake everything else, but that actually they now that they've met these beautiful French princess and her ladies and waiting, that now they actually have to associate them because women are the right Promethean fire, right? So it, ladies are the actual sort of inspiration of knowledge and reason. Uh, and so if we don't consort with these women, you know, how can we possibly be scholars? So, but what you can compare to Prometheus in terms of either the growth of knowledge or the benefit, 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 benefiting mankind is is substantial
0: Um, yes Mm -hmm.
1: so um so there are and 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 if you want you know in a way of kind of setting up um the way you know as a way of kind of setting up thinking about how rand uses the prometheus myth it's worth um kind of pointing out how others um at least since the enlightenment had been using the prometheus myth in different ways so for example goethe and Byron both use Prometheus as a symbol of artistic creativity and inspiration. Percy Bysshe Shelley uses Prometheus in his Prometheus Unbound as a a symbol of the struggle against tyranny. And also he he depicts Prometheus as a Christ-like figure who suffers for the sake of all of mankind. So in order to save mankind, he kind of goes on his own cross, which of course is the Caucasus Mountain where he's chained and, and tortured. Um the his wife, Mary Shelley, um, subtitles her novel Frankenstein as a, um, uh, a modern Prometheus. Um, but there people always associate it with fire and you know, like electricity, hitting those big Tesla coils and the in the movie sets and so on. It's actually, it's not that. It's a new Prometheus, meaning a new creator of man, because Dr. Frankenstein is kind of creating a new race of beings. Um, So that's the the relevant sense of Prometheus in the title. And then, um, and then there's also, uh, uh, so um, also in Mary Shelley, there's, you use him to kind of explore the ambiguity of technological power and, and energy, right? Like, does it, Is it all an entirely good thing or does it present new and potentially deadly risks? Um, And so on. So it's very interesting, I think, in particular to contrast um, Rand's versions of Prometheus or her Promethean figures to Percy Bysshe Shelley's um, kind of Christ-like Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Um, Both want to liberate humankind. Both are sort of, in a sense, both are benefactors but one is sort of explicitly self-sacrificial and the other, the others are explicitly rejecting self-sacrifice. Indeed, they identify a kind of code of self-sacrifice or collectivism with the very sort of chains that would, and or the Eagle or so on that would bound, bound and torture them.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, to the extent that that Prometheus is, is like kind of related to the, uh, the judeo-christian god wouldn't wouldn't you say like jesus is another instance of you know a sort of semi-prometheus type figure being crucified as a sacrifice kind of so like shelley in a sense is sort of reiterating um what was already
1: that's that's tricky to say look um the um the idea is that so in a certain kind of Christology, um, I, I I would say now it's just mainstream Christian Christology. In one element, um, Jesus is sacrificed by God to um, to repent or, or purge the sins of mankind and offer them a possibility of of life after beyond death, um, and and in some versions, it's even a kind of way of sealing a new covenant with mankind of offering God's son as a sacrifice. Um, and Jesus is a most, what what's become, at least what's become or standard Christian Christology. Jesus is, is God and always was God, but also was man, but always was kind of God, um, which was not how many early Christians saw it. Many early Christians thought, Jesus was born a man and God adopted him, or he was never, he was all God and no man. It was just a kind of hologram of a man, Um, all kinds of views, much more diverse number of takes on Jesus back then than now in in this deep sense. Okay. So, um, but in any case, Jesus is, you know, kind of sacrificial lamb. Many people point to the binding of Isaac as a kind of precursor or prolepsis, a kind of foreshadowing of Jesus. Christians look to that part of the Hebrew Bible and say, this is foreshadowing Jesus. Um, But you don't see in, I don't think you find in classical or archaic Greek myth, any kind of notion that Prometheus is a sacrifice. Um, That's a very distinct and powerful notion. And he's not, he's, first of all, he can't be killed. The, The Greeks are with very few exceptions. The Greeks are much less ambiguous about the idea that a God can die. In fact, one of the things that makes no sense, perhaps, about Jesus to pagan Greeks is how could a God die? That doesn't make any sense. Um, and and so you can't be sacrificed in that sense. And to sacrifice is to kill something, like you, for the Greeks. You can't sacrifice without that. Um, and then on top of it, um, it's not clear who is he an offering to? Is he an offering of Zeus to Zeus? Because that Zeus is the one who puts him there. So... It's possible to say that, that Prometheus, if he had foresight about what was going to happen, he foresaw what would happen to him. That's how it's depicted in Aeschylus's Prometheus. Bound. but does it anyway, and that he willingly undergoes suffering. So in, in, so there is an, in a perhaps a moral sense or, or in, a, in a more loose sense, he perhaps sacrifices himself or his well-being at least for some hundreds or thousands of years before his release for our benefit or to protect us or to do something or or he just takes his licks because he wants to accomplish something else. But not in any kind of the clear religious sort of sense that I think sacrifice means in the ancient world, whether to Hebrews or to, to Greeks. And so in that sense, I don't think Prometheus was ever seen by the Greeks as a sacrifice um, and even his willing. They might say that he willingly did such and such for mankind, um, but and you could say that they might think about it as ethically altruistic. They don't have that word, but something like that. But they, it's importantly, it's not. I think what they mean by a, a sacrifice, um, mm-hmm. and, and for that reason, now you might say, but isn't it ethically a sacrifice? Just like Jesus is ethically a sacrifice. Well, yeah, maybe. Um, but if you're asking are the myths connected then I think you have to think of them the way they thought of them and the way they thought of them is different here because this is one is a kind of certain ritual role and one is not
0: okay so this uh Shelley person uh what what was their name and when were they living
1: Percy Biss Shelley so he's one of the great romantic poets of the second generation of romantics along with Byron and Keats he's the husband of Mary Shelley, of, she of Frankenstein fame, good friends with uh, Lord Byron. Um, yeah, died unfortunately early in a in a in a ship crash. Um, so very early, so early nineteenth century is his kind
0: of uh, acme. Okay, turned made Prometheus into more of a Christ-like figure, and then of course, Ayn Rand and, uh, and has... a
1: symbol and a symbol of Enlightenment political values of liberty.
0: And of course, Ayn Rand is looking to get Jesus out of both the Enlightenment as well as the Prometheus myth.
1: Yes, yeah, that's right.
0: So uh, what's, a, what's a good uh, launch pad to, to get into Ayn Rand's relationship to Prometheus?
1: Well, so the first question is something like, what what appeals about the Prometheus myth? Like, why use this myth? Rand, you know, talks about, um, in in the art of in The Art of Fiction, she talks about you can have you can have an old theme with an old plot. You can have an old theme with a new plot and you can have a new theme with a new plot. You can't have a new theme with an old plot. You can't dramatize a new theme without a new plot. But um, and, you know, many of the best novels, she says, are old themes, new plots. Um, uh why you might think like, well, she really wants new themes and she has those um, in terms of her, her, just her distinctive moral philosophy. Um, what about, you know, the plots? Well, the plots, um, particularly in Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are sort of our new novel. Um, but why, why use this sort of element? You know, why, why, and why have the heroes in three of your stories in a row, in Anthem and Think Twice in, Atlas Shrugged, you know, cleave so much to this sort of myth. And I think myths are powerful. You can draw upon them without being subsumed by them. So it's not like Atlas Shrugged is just the Prometheus story. Um, but Galt is a Promethean figure. And I think Twice isn't just the Prometheus story. Although um, uh, Steve Ingalls is a Promethean figure. And even, even Equality, who renames himself Prometheus, isn't just prometheus but a promethean figure um i think the so the prometheus myth obviously is tied to civilization to power and technology to the power of reason to rebellion and defiance to punishment confinement bondage to re- liberation and redemption possibly to the kind of relationship between the gods and mankind and also to you know, what it means or what it takes to sort of benefit mankind in general. But maybe more than anything else, the theft of fire has a kind of core element that makes it incredibly attractive to any kind of story, which is that the basic basic dramatic core is that you have a protagonist who bestows the greatest possible benefit and then suffers the worst possible punishment for it. And that's just good drama. You do the goodest, nicest, most helpful thing, and you get treated in the worst possible way. You immediately want to know why. That's unfair. How does that play out? What what, what explains it? Where does it go? Right? It, that's good. That's that's good stuff for a story. Um so I think that um uh, it's primarily the myth of fire that of, of all the myths of, of Prometheus. It's sort of the myth of fire um, that is that Rand most draws upon. You might think that she's touching upon kind of creating a new race of man. There there are various other things I could point to, but maybe it's a little bit of these other Prometheus myths or mythemes. But but I think it's it's primarily the fire. That's what she's most familiar with. That's what her readers are most familiar with. Um, And but she gives um, a new twist. With um, so, uh, sort of several new twists on it. Um, so, um, since antiquity, um, Prometheus is used to sort of link reason, he is a sort of middle term between reason and human survival. He is a sort of God of knowledge and reason he gives fire and the other arts to mankind, that mankind survives and their well-being improves. Um, And it's not as if people fully grasp this notion that reason was their means of survival, but at least Prometheus and his myths come closest in at least a mythic form of kind of symbolizing this, at least as the Greeks came to, many Greeks came to understand what Prometheus symbolized as a kind of power of reasoning. Um, Rand changes this somewhat, so it, she makes it, although it's tied to technology. She also links it, in the case of Steve Ingalls and in the case of Galt, to theoretical reason, sort of theoretical science, so that actually, like, just the exploratory power of reason in an abstract level to understand the universe is capable of producing great um, energy. And um, but um, but the biggest difference is this: that in so there, there are no gods and Rand's stories, but. In her stories, Prometheus is persecuted not by Zeus, but by mankind because he has benefited them. And that's there's that famous bit in, in, in Rourke's courtroom speech that the first man who invented the wheel was probably racked upon it or you know or broken upon it. Um, um, but the man who invented fire was probably right so um and so envy is not a divine force but a human force um as i mentioned earlier it's the resentment of people who want these things maybe think they're entitled uh to these things um and there's there is a kind of notion that um the the societies in which these figures sort of find themselves sort of might want them to sort of take a Christ-like role. Like, yes, benefit us and then be sacrificed to us. Like, offer us this great value and then give it away for free and let us misuse it or or abuse it however we want. Um, And Prometheus here doesn't sort of wait for a Heracles to come liberate him. He, in view, liberates himself. And the way that he liberates himself is by withdrawing his fire. So Prometheus, you know, creates this thing and then says, "Wait, I'm not going to just give it away. I'm not going to give it away as long as you're going to punish me for it." Um, in in the process, he offers mankind a new benefit, which is a new moral code. Um, but uh, but the way that um, that Rand sort of conceives it is that something like sanction of the victim and altruism are the chains and and egoism is the liberation of of this force of the mind. Um, And so her Promethean figures are are sort of a reversed Christ, Antichrist, if you want to be cheeky, in that he has to choose to not sacrifice himself, to not sacrifice the best that is possible. And he must teach mankind an anti-sacrificial morality through his example. And that's also that's also present in Rourke's demolition as well, right? I gave you this, you're gonna use it for this thing, this project, no, I'm taking it back, right? And by doing so, I show you like, this belongs to me and you don't get to just claim this because you want it or need it because you need it so quote you supposedly. supposed to
0: be yeah that's i mean that's the uh like old school uh version like i'm giving you this to use a certain way but but the the john galt uh sort of incarnation is is saying like just don't punish me for it like don't uh don't resent me and envy me and then punish me for giving you this gift and leave yeah, me alone I mean,
1: He doesn't emphasize, I don't think Galt is sort of motivated by like resenting the fact that he doesn't get more accolade. He's never really pursued it. I don't think he cares about that, but he at least doesn't want to be punished for it or other people to act as if it it belongs to him, or he is is their slave, at least morally speaking, precisely because he can do so much. Um, And it's interesting that it's not only his motor which is a source of energy and light that he withdraws, although he does. It's also the motor of the world, which is the mind, which is, which the Promethean fire has always symbolized. And so in this case, it's not only he's withdrawing the symbol of the mind in, in his strike, he withdraws the mind, which is to say the mind of actual creators um, who can use their minds. And that without them, not just the biggest Prometheus, but all the other Promethei, right? Like they are the the, the the proponents of self-sacrifice uh, have to collapse or, or and those who are sort of in the middle can try to turn to something better
0: and it's like fascinating uh, the way Rand sort of introduces her ethics it's not just like here you know here's a new theory of ethics it's it's like this dramatization where like this sort of like new Prometheus type of figure is like confronting the whole the whole world and all of mankind and saying enough is enough like you know here here's a new like a new ethics like a new fire but uh the you know shenanigans end here um it's pretty pretty amazing and i mean the link between mythology and philosophy uh should not be a mystery to anybody at this point um yeah i mean
1: I, i think um I don't get me wrong. Um, you mentioned like the Peters stuff. I guess he's he's get inspired by Jung and Campbell and and others. Um, I think there are there are limits to what myth can tell us in certain respects of, of philosophy. I think sometimes stories from different cultures, civilizations can tell us something about their worldview. Um, that's what you would expect in art or in, in literature or or um even, even pre-writing. Um, but um, but on the other hand, um, you can also go too far. There's a kind of weird esotericism where you sort of plumb the depths of different myths and you look for certain patterns and you think like, well, now I'm going to discern um, um, you know, these hidden truths in them and so on. And I think ultimately, like it's interesting to find these themes and, and ideas and myths. Um, but at the end of the day, Myth is not the, the ideal vehicle. Art is not an ideal vehicle for the discovery of philosophical truth, unless it's sort of done in tandem with making your philosophy. So, if you're making your philosophy and then you want to present it, that can be very effective. And I suppose there have been ph- Rand, but but others who, in thinking through stories, perhaps have come upon philosophical ideas. So, I don't want to suggest they're unrelated, but, but at the end of the day, we need sort of evidence and argument and observation and, um, and stories can, you know, stories can fail to depict the world in in true ways, both literally, both at the kind of level of literal details, but also at a more philosophical level of how people act and what, whether they have a comeuppance for certain kinds of things and what, what they look like under certain, you know, is this, evil person, unhappy or not, you know, and how, how much fidelity they have to sort of psychological truth, if you will, um, or political truth. Um, you know, there are plenty of dystopian novels where these future societies, though bad, still are able to do certain things that they just wouldn't be able to do if they were built the way that they're built. Um, you know, like they, um, and this is, I think, a kind of point in favor of sort of Anthem, like with a kind of a certain level of collectivism like you couldn't have a, a highly sophisticated technological society that at the same time tells people to not use their minds right that that's not feasible
0: yeah yeah i i also i mean I, I it sounds like you're saying anthem is more realistic than 1984 or, or brave new world
1: i don't know it is realistic or, or, or not i mean i, I suspect that even I'm not even sure Rand thought that you could ever really have a society that could fully like extirpate the concept of I, um, in the way that it depicts. It's just, it's. I mean, she at one point called it like a prose poem or something like it. it's. It's. It's a. It's a kind of. Um, it's almost more like a thought experiment, um, and uh, or um, a rhapsody. So that's that's. You know, I, I don't know, that it's more more realistic i just think it gets in a certain kind of truth a little bit more it, 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 a more kind of architectonic feature which is that these you won't have highly sophisticated technological societies that are founded on the morality of 10000 bc
0: right yeah yeah i mean the so the uh the role that art plays in in our lives it's it's complex and it's fascinating in one respect like we need it we cannot i don't i don't think fully function and develop without art but also we need we need certain things to be conceptualized we need philosophy to be explicit as well we can't only rely on stories yeah (laughs) yeah
1: yeah yeah absolutely i mean that's not really i mean who's i don't who's surprised by that point but i just wanted to i just wanted to um, be extra kind of clear about what kind of role myth has. So, art has um, an um, an un, uh, a indispensable role in um, dramatizing, in rendering perceivable, retainable, experienceable philosophies that philosophies on their own considered as abstract systems can't do. And people since Plato have seen that. As much as Plato is a kind of critic of all these various Greek myths and the lies that they tell, he also thinks you need to tell stories. Um, You you need to. Even philosophers need to tell stories to themselves um, to kind of fully bring the soul on side, so to speak, to fully kind of persuade us and get us to see things a certain way and feel a certain way about them. Um, and and I think, you know, I think this is true. Um, and so it's it is fa- it, so look, I think it's just sort of fascinating to study myth in general, um, re- regardless of sort of its link to philosophy. I think it has even more interesting things to tell us or has other and new interesting things to tell us when we look at it through philosophy and, um, and, um, and then, and then even more, when we look at what can myths or what can stories sort of do for a philosophy, um, not just what philosophy is in myths.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, Read some super chats. Yeah. uh, So Christopher with, with some Canadian dollars is saying thoughts on Exodus, gods and kings. Are you familiar is that a TV show or something, a series? Like, I mean, obviously, it's the name of one of the books of the the Bible, Exodus, colon, Gods and Kings. Maybe it was a History Channel thing. I don't know. Anyway, uh, well, maybe if, if you do Google it or something, we'll come back to oh, it. Jonathan, It's a,
1: it's yeah, a movie. It had Christian Bale as, as Moses. Okay. Uh, hmm. 2014. I didn't see it. I'm sorry. I, uh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I have no thoughts on it. I, I didn't see it.
0: Well, and I'm surprised at a time where everyone's demanding that only trans people play trans characters, et cetera, that they would let Christian play King of the, you know, Moses, the, the Hebrew guy. But, you know, it's a little, little dad joke there, a little bit of high, highbrow humor. Uh, Jonathan, thank you. Jonathan, again, thank you. Enric with 499 says, how do the different temples reflect the culture of those people?
1: Um. Well, we have to look at different specific features. So, um, some people will point out that um, um, Greek temples, for example, are always positioned on an east to west axis. So, for the to face the rising and setting suns, um, they are um, they are built in some sense to resemble a kind of house but a sort of royal house for the gods so kind of fit home for them um and you can look at the specific art styles of these temples as both the style artistic style as well as what they depict um to get some sense of what these people value and how they think they should honor their their gods or what it is that they're honoring at all Um, if you look at, um, say the Parthenon famously and the Metopes and the pediments and so on, it's clear that they are, while they're honoring Athena, they're, Athena is also the god, goddess of Athens and it's the same word, Athena. Um, and so it is also honoring themselves in honoring her. Um, there's a kind of identification there. Um, and some people will say, you know, in the battles of the Amazonomachy, or in the centuromachy, the Lapix fighting the centaurs, this sort of symbolizes Greeks versus foreign foreign barbarians or that them against the Persians or something like this, where they're on the kind of side of the human and rational is against the wild and barbaric and so on. Um, So you can look at those kinds of things and you can take them as kind of clues of, of importance. You can see, for example, how in other cultures Um, gods are depicted, what they're depicted as doing, what kings are depicted as doing, for example. Um, So there are certain places where temples are about projecting the power of the person who built them um, as a kind of extension of royal domain, or they are built as a way of tying the ruler to this god and saying that in some way they're the same or they're parallel or I'm descended from him, or I'm favored by this god, or certain things like that, and then other temples that avoid um, anthropolatry, worshiping humans, treating people like gods. Um, and of course, one—I mean, one other bit is that um, you um, you have a big distinction between, at least in the case of the Hebrews, and then later in the case of Islam mosques and continuing in Jewish temples and so on. Um, an iconism, so just a, re, a re, or an an idolatry, a rejection of engraven images, a rejection of depiction of of God in any sense. Um, and that tells you something perhaps about, about what their priorities are in terms of uh, how they view the divine, how they view it in relation to people, what, what they want worship to look like. Um, and I think that's significant. So I haven't said specific things here about, well, these people's temples tell you this and these people's temples. I said a little bit like just the part that that might be a famous example because I know some objectivists have talked about it in the past and what it symbolizes and compared it to other kinds of things. Um, I think that, you know, um, people tend to make their temples, especially really the big ones and the ones that, you know, the monumental ones that survive. they tend to make them the best that they can make. Um, These are for their gods, after all. Um, And, you know, sometimes their technology at a given time is limited. Now, over the span of centuries, why do some people's technology advance and others not? That's a good question about their culture. But um, I think that it's easier to read values off of iconography or the lack of it and other kinds of symbolic positioning um, and statement than architectural features as such. That's not that they have no philosophical meaning perhaps, it's just that um, at any given time, people are probably using the kind of architectural features they have. They might make a few innovations here and there, um, but unless they're sort of you know, it, it's. I think the the meaning is more in the symbols, the statues, the the inscriptions, um, at least that we can
0: get a sense of. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Christopher asks: Is Prometheus fire a metaphor for knowledge?
1: It has been, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But it's uh-huh. also just been fire, and it's also been um, technology. Yeah, it it has been, but
0: it's mm-hmm. but, but sometimes it's
1: just more literally fire. But then mm-hmm. fire allows you to do lots of other technologies and survival uh, behaviors, so it leads to knowledge or allows knowledge and practical uh, application.
0: Yeah, I mean nobody would have, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, come up with the c- quadratic formula if fire had never been invented. Let's face yeah. it. Um, or, or
1: even more simply, like you can't have cooking without fire. How would you learn how to cook? Or you can't, you can't make, you can't make metal tools without fire right so those kinds of knowledge are immediately tied to fire
0: yeah yeah a fire it just literal fire is a great gift and a few people were discussing uh who the girl on the starbucks cup is i think it's queen esther do you are you, are you aware if, if that's I true it was
1: a mermaid
0: i don't know but that's what you know, some people are saying but i've heard uh, like the crown i'm trying to remove the sleeve like the crown is supposed to be queen esther from uh from the Book of Esther, I guess. Uh, I guess we don't know, or we can I'll go with Mermaid for I'll, now.
1: I'll more likely as, as than Esther, but. Um,
0: oh, uh, oh! So now Esther is not even good enough to be her own thing. She, she's got some ancestor, some shared ancestry with uh, the other. I thought. Uh, I, I, I thought the book
1: Starbucks Siren. Uh, yep sometimes called the Starbucks Siren, Starbucks Mermaid. Yeah. No, uh, I'll, I'll look it up, but um,
0: yeah, I was going to say, you know, so much. And then for everything else, there's Google, right? Wikipedia. I'm kidding. Yeah. But um, yeah. Do you think the book of Esther would make a, for an, a full episode? Uh, do you think it can be fleshed out? Do, do, I have you know? to reread it. I,
1: I haven't, I haven't, I haven't read it in 30 years. Um,
0: oh, wow. Um, it's uh. uh it's definitely the coolest story in the in the, yeah, Bible, it's, in the
1: it's it's the most folktale like story. it's fun. Um, yeah, so uh, it is it, well, here's something relevant to things we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. The protagonists of the Migilat Esther, the the tale of Esther um, are Esther and her um, and her uncle Mordecai and they live in the Persian Empire under. Rosh in Hebrew, which is Atexerxes uh, for for us in the kind of Greco English version, um, and um, and the interesting thing is, you might ask, what kind of name is Esther? What kind of name is Mordecai? Mordecai is a version of Marduk, who is the god of Babylon. Esther is uh, is is a version of Ishtar, another Babylonian god, a goddess, I should say. So you have here, you have these Jews living in the Persian Empire with the uh, name. Um, uh, in it takes place in 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 Shushan in Hebrew, which is the Persian city of capital of Susa, and um, uh, uh, to this day, by the way, there are Persian Jews who. Who have the name Shoshani. Um, anyway, uh, so it's in part it's a and she marries a Persian king, and no one's like, oh no, she's marrying a non Jew. It's like she's marrying the king. That's good for us Jews. And and this Jewish guy Mordecai becomes an advisor eventually, and so on. And so it's a one of the interesting things. It's an assimilation story, or at least it has elements of that. Right? They these are Jews with beg- the names of foreign gods right living in a foreign empire and doing pretty well and then trying to deal with um people who are envious of the jews and, and want to prosecute them
0: mm-hmm. yeah well early on in the story it's 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 anti-assimilation because the the jews or hebrews were being invited to this feast and they didn't want to go because there was going to be food there that was not you know yeah. meeting the dietary standard um so yeah. and yeah has,
1: yeah yeah it's, no it's, it's it's not right it's mm-hmm. it's it's not totally comfortable where it
0: sits. yeah right. um but it is the one story I, I i believe in the entire uh torah the entire old testament and probably the obviously the new testament but i don't know but definitely it's the one jewish uh part of the bible that has no mention of god at all no mention of god um which i guess is is people have interpreted like oh well because god is behind the scenes even when you you know even when god's not appearing he's really behind the scenes and i say well when you've got a beautiful sexy woman that close to the king getting him to do what she wants who needs god you know you'll be you'll things will work out
1: yeah i mean in all likelihood this is a kind of hebrew adaptation of persian folk tales or stories there's um and one bit of evidence for this is just that the interesting similarity between the story of Ahasuerus's first queen, Vashti, uh, and a story about, um, about Gyges that's in Herodotus, and about, um, about a king who wants to show off his queen naked, or who's queen is sort of spied upon and then the kind of ramifications of that and 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 so forth so it, it it seems that there's an element here of um the same kind of king whose wife got shown off or showed off his wife naked and it bit him in the butt as who would have thought um and um
0: yeah it could make a great HBO show, you know, like Game of Thrones style series with uh, the part where a Haman fall, trips and falls onto Esther, and then the king walks in. What's going on here? You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 a fun story. It's a all fun right. Story. Final question: Why are so many of those books green? What is that? Is that like one uh, encyclopedia series or something? Oh my God! More than I thought. Oh. Um... If it can be answered in less than two minutes.
1: These are our books in the Loeb Classical Library, uh, which is a, um, it's a series about 100 years old out of Harvard, a little more than old. Um, and the red, the green ones are the Greek and the red ones are the Latin. And then these are Oxford Classical texts and a bunch of other things. So they are, they are a series. Um, they're Greek on one side, English translation on the other, or Latin on one side. English translation
0: on the other. Well, it's very aesthetically pleasing. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. All right. (laughs) With all that, uh, let's call it a wrap. Um, Coming up at 8 p.m. UK time, uh, James Valiant, joined by Robert Nacer, will be discussing Leonard Peikoff's essay, Ayn Rand's Literary Style. Uh, And that's all we've got here today. Uh, Thanks, Jason. This was a wonderful conversation as always. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, see you guys later. Have
1: fun in London.
0: Come to London, everybody. And goodbye.